south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 346, covering the week of February 27th through March 3rd, 2023. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, like our Facebook and Gab pages, and subscribe to our YouTube page. You can find all those social media accounts at our webpage, abbevilleinstitute.org. That's A-B-B-E-V-I-L-L-E, institute.org. While you're there, give us an email address. We'll give you a free ebook exploring the Southern tradition written by 20 Abbeville Institute scholars. It's free of charge to you just for giving us that email list. And once you're on the email list, you'll get emails from us usually five times a week, sometimes six times a week, sometimes seven times a week. So don't unsubscribe because... That's how we keep in touch with you and let you know about all the great things going on at the Institute. You get our Daily Dose of Dixie, which is our articles every day. You also get information about forthcoming conferences and webinars. We just had one this week, last night, in fact, as I'm recording this, on 20th Century Southern Conservatism. It was a great webinar. These are now free of charge. So if you want to get on free of charge, you can come watch them live and ask questions. Though we do post them on YouTube after the event is over and that uh, usually within a day, and that event will go up today on YouTube. So again, this is why YouTube is such an invaluable resource as well. You get a lot of free content there, our podcast, our uh, lectures, our Abbeville U videos, of course, our webinars as they go up. So just a lot of good stuff on YouTube. So uh, come on out and see those things, but you know about it because of the email. Also, as I'm recording this, there's about a week, a little over a week left to sign up for our 20th anniversary conference in Pine Mountain, Georgia at beautiful Callaway Gardens. It is April 13th through 16th. We have a great program setting up for you. It's going to be a lot of fun, and there's not a lot of time left to get in and then get your hotel room reserved there. So you want to do that if you're interested. Go to abbevilleinstitute.org, click on the events tab in the middle of the page. It'll take you to the links that you have to go to to get to that event and sign up. So we're really excited about that and hope that you come on out for that event. Um, It's just going to be fantastic. Um, Also, if you do like what we do, and you like the podcast, the website, the events, all that stuff, consider a tax-deductible donation to the Abbeville Institute. Uh, It is uh, the way that we stay in business. So if you want to see more of our content, then please consider that donation. You can go to abbevilleinstitute.org, click on the Donate button, You can send an online donation. You can send it offline. There's our addresses on the website, too. So if you're interested in things that we do and you want to see more of it, please consider that donation. Uh, We do appreciate everything you do. And a couple other things. We have Abbeville Academy. Abbevilleacademy.org. If you've missed some of those older webinars, we we used to charge for the webinars. So if you missed some of the older webinars, you can go to abbevilleacademy.org, and you can purchase some of these older webinars there. They're cheap, 15 bucks. And you get the webinar. Um, it's a it's a great way to pick up some of these old webinars. We have over a dozen out there, and these are at least an hour long. So you're getting uh, an hour long uh, webinar on some really great content, and uh, they're they're a fantastic resource. So go to abbevilleacademy.org and pick those up, and also get our logo and all kinds of cool stuff if you go to abbevilleinstitute.org and click on the shop tab. All right. All that said, we do have a new book coming up, by the way. It's on Faulkner, Jim Kibler, the Abbeville Press. And we'll, we'll have an out, announcement about that uh, in the near future. But Jim Kibler's book on Faulkner will be out. 
So now that all that's said, let's talk about the material for the week. And I want to really focus on one article more than any other. And it's the article that we ran on Wednesday. And it's entitled uh, the uh, Defining American Sovereignty. Now, I'll, I'll mention some of the other articles we had this week, but Defining American Sovereignty. This is something, of course, that the Institute has done a lot of over the years. And that's looking at the relationship of the states and the general government, the principles of federalism, decentralization, secession, nullification. These are things we've talked a lot about. And I would say that Don Livingston is one of the foremost pioneers in this field in the modern uh, American philosophical, political philosophy uh, discourse. And I say that because when he started talking about these things back in the 90s, no one was really doing it. In fact, he, he mentions he had a conference on secession in the early 90s and hardly anybody showed up because no one was talking about these issues. What I find fascinating about it is that legal scholars have now become interested in this. Uh, there was a book that came out about seven years ago by uh, Samuel Levinson, who was a pretty well-known legal scholar. And he collected a series of essays on secession. What's interesting about that is that he started focusing on the topic maybe in the early 2000s, maybe around 2004 or five. He started thinking about secession and doing uh, more work on secession from a legal perspective in teaching his classes. And that led to this book. Don Livingston had already been doing this for a decade. And you had other people that were interested in it too, Kirkpatrick Sale and Thomas Naylor. Uh, and I find it fascinating that the legal scholars are now focusing on this from a legal position. And there was a book that came out just a couple of years ago, uh, The Trial of Jefferson Davis. It's uh, by Cynthia Nicoletti, or Secession on Trial, I think is the title of the book. Cynthia Nicoletti, and she now teaches at the University of Virginia at Law School. And um, it was, it's actually a pretty decent book. I, her conclusions are uh, a little bit uh, wrong in some ways. But, and then she, she has the obligatory, the South is bad, you know, South is racist, all these kind of things. But um, she does take secession seriously. And she does take this issue from a legal perspective seriously. And her conclusion is that Lincoln's inaugural and the decision of Texas v. White in, um, in 1869 are just flat. They don't really have any legal merit to them. They don't really have any legal weight or muscle. They're just kind of bland decisions, particularly the Texas v. White decision. It's not very good. And that there needed to be some type of adjudication on secession from a court, and Texas v. White wasn't it. In that particular book, she considers, uh, she actually has an interesting chapter on uh, the war as settling the issue. And did the war actually settle anything? And there were a lot of Southerners who con contended that it didn't. Though by the late 19th century, I think you would find that generally the consensus opinion was that the war did settle it. The war settled it entirely, that the war solved the issue, the war solved the problem. It was all over with the war. But again, um, I don't know if every Southerner necessarily bought that position. They continued to press their arguments in favor of the legality of secession because they knew that was the key to not having anyone be tried for treason. So she has this chapter on the war and how the war settled the issue, but not really 
legally settled the issue, just kind of settled the issue in terms of it can never happen again because we had this war. But even Jefferson said, you know, wars don't solve anything. Wars never solve a legal question. They can postpone the question. They can kick the can down the road a little further. But they never solve the legal question. Wars are not definitive answers to, to any type of major political problem. So I think it's interesting that we're having this discussion in the 2020s about the legality of secession. And it's, been, it's come up. Uh, you had uh, a sitting member of Congress from Georgia, Marjorie Taylor Greene, say we need a national divorce. And you find these legal scholars using that, that terminology divorce a lot when it comes to a discussion of secession. Now, what's interesting about that, too, is that Madison never really compared the compact, the union, with a, with a marriage. In fact, he actually went into detail about this at one point, but he didn't think they were synonymous. But regardless, you do have a compact, a contract between states. And that's something that Levinson is very clear about. He actually says that John Jay's Federalist Number 2 was just complete garbage, that Jay was putting together a nation that didn't exist. He is certainly someone who believes that you had all this discordant parts in the United States and that a federation was the only way you could hold it together and that you could not have. There was no national authority, that the states still had tremendous powers, that the people of the states, and he does go back to the people part, the people of the states are important here. Now, what, of course, a lot of these people miss is that conventions were seen as the way to fully express the voice of the people. Conventions that were held uh, in the states to ratify the Constitution. And then, of course, you had a convention, the Philadelphia Convention, which produced the Constitution. That was the way uh, forward. And that was different from, say, the, the Articles of Confederation, where you had the legislatures ratify that document. But you had the, the conventions ratify the Constitution. So the people of the states spoke when it came to the ratification of the Constitution, but they were still representing their states, not some, some glob of American people. It wasn't really an American sovereignty or a sovereignty of the federal authority uh, outside of itself. It was only given its powers because the people of the states gave it its powers, uh, and essentially the states, because the people make up the states. This is how states were always formed. You had people, and then they could elect a government, but people and a certain number of people made a state. We have to understand all of that. This structure is the people of the state make the state, and then the states, the people of the states, make the general government. And so, yes, the people are represented in the general government through the, through the House of Representatives, but they're still chosen by states. I mean, you have a certain number of representatives per state. It's not just a, a national referendum and you're going to get you know, 435 people chosen at large from wherever. I mean, these people represent districts in their states. The states still have currency. It's not as simple as administrative subdivisions, but as sovereign entities. And we know this is the case because of the 9th, 10th, and 11th Amendments. There was another participant in a webinar that was held uh, with Cynthia Nicoletti and Levinson in it. Her name is Alison LaCroix, and she talks about the importance in that webinar of uh, Chisholm v. Georgia, which then produced the 11th Amendment. If you want to know what the founding generation thought about state sovereignty, just look at the 11th Amendment. They came up with a state sovereign immunity. A sovereign state couldn't be sued without its consent. Now, the Supreme Court has narrowly interpreted that amendment, 
to make it to where it's almost impossible to use it. But we know that it was created because Georgia was sued and they couldn't do anything about it. And so the the founding generation, this was the, the 11th Amendment was ratified not long after the Bill of Rights. The founding generation said, oh, enough of that. We're not going to allow you to sue a state without its consent. Here we go. Here's the 11th Amendment. That shows you clearly that the states believed, or the founding generation believed the states were sovereign. There's no other way to interpret that. Of course, we know that the 10th Amendment, what became the 10th Amendment, was the key to ratifying the Constitution because virtually every state that submitted a Bill of Rights for proposals to James Madison, of course, the Congress, and Madison condensed these down, had a 10th Amendment, quote-unquote 10th Amendment, in its list, and usually first. This was the key to understanding the entire system. You can't think of the Federation, the Federal Republic of Republics. It's the Federal Republic without understanding the, the real principle of state powers and state sovereignty. And again, Don Livingston, the founder and former president of the Institute, has been on this topic for nearly 30 years. 30 years. Uh, while some of these other people are relative noobs, newbies to it, right? I mean, they, they've been doing this for, you know, maybe... Uh, Levinson's case, maybe 20 years. Uh, and some of these other people, you know, maybe a little less than a decade or maybe a little over a decade, I should say. Uh, I think LaCroix wrote a book on uh, federalism uh, back in 2010, which is an interesting book. Uh, she actually goes back to the colonial period to find the origins of federalism and their understanding of uh, the nature of government was, was based out of this colonial experience. Uh, which is entirely correct. I mean, look, the the uh, founding generation were was using nullification before we even had a, a general government for the United States. Even on the Articles of Confederation, they were using it. That's what they did. And they, I mean, Jefferson's concept in 1774 in the summary view is of federalism. I mean, this is how they all thought of the the Union uh, with the Empire. Uh, even uh, you know the, the concession by John Dickinson and others that you could have the center regulate trade and defend the colonies is essentially the same situation you have with the federal government. That's what they can. That's what they conceptualize of the general government in Washington D.C. or New York, Philadelphia, wherever it was. But first New York, then Philadelphia, then Washington, was that you had a central authority that could do just what the Parliament could do in the American War for Independence, and that's it. That's it. That's what it was supposed to do. You, you, can't, you can't look at all these things in a vacuum. You have to look at their historical experience. And so when we talk about things like nullification, which is simply the act of the people of the states, and Jefferson thought it should be through convention, though he actually had a mechanism that he came up with that. But, um, but certainly the legislatures even could do it. But the, the mere act of the states saying to the general government, you've exceeded your bounds, we're going to stop this. Uh, that was not something alien to the period of time you know, leading up to the war in, in 1860. It only became alien after the war because we had, a, we had a cataclysmic shift in America. And that shift was Lincoln. And the ascendancy of Lincoln's ahistorical interpretation of what the United States was and what its government was. That's important. Uh, Lincoln basically fabricated a national government out of thin air in 1861. And so we have to understand that when we look at this idea of American sovereignty. And this is an interesting piece. It was actually, 
uh, written by a law professor, uh, Evan Jalobter, I think is how you say his last name, Jalobter. Uh, he, he teaches uh, law in uh, Virginia, I think. Let me, let me look here. I, I can't remember where he's a professor. I'm sorry, Southern University Law School. Um, and this is a really interesting piece because he basically outlines what I've just explained. Now, at the end of the piece, there was somebody, a couple of commenters didn't like the fact that he said the war settled uh, the issue of, of secession. Uh, and again, if you if you follow the institute, we wouldn't we wouldn't uh, say that. Uh, but we do have you know we have different opinions on this website all the time, and I think that's something that's uh, you need to have those different opinions because it gives you a starting point for a discussion. But this piece is heavy on Calhoun and Tucker and all of the Southern positions on sovereignty and where that lies in the American system. Madison's position that you had dual sovereignty was a little bit of a, I mean, that's a difficult thing to have. You can't really have dual sovereignty. You either have sovereignty or you don't, and you can't lose it once you have it. And when you look at the language of the Constitution, it's clear that there's the powers are being delegated here and granted, as, of course, the language in the first article. All legislative powers here and granted. Well, who's granting those powers? It's the people of the states, or the states, in essence, to the central authority. The, the uh, central authority was created by them, and uh, it's clear when you look at Article 7 of the Constitution, it's a constitution between the states, the states so ratifying the same. It's, it's, I mean, look, the language is all over the document to make you understand that this is a document that still maintains the original form and structure of the Articles of Confederation. This is something also that's interesting about these arguments. Was the Constitution a secession from the Articles? In some ways it was, but in some ways it wasn't. I think that the nature of the union stayed intact. It still was a union, a more perfect union of what, but a union of states. Was it, they, didn't, they didn't scrap the idea that we're going to have a union of states and then go to a union of people. Well, that wasn't going to happen. It was still a union of the people of the states to a union of the people of the states. In order to form a more, a more perfect union, a more perfect union, a better union than what we had on the Articles, which didn't have some of the, of course, um, structure in place that the Constitution would have. It didn't have the three branches of government, didn't have the executive power, didn't have a le- it didn't have a judicial branch, didn't have a bicameral legislature. Um, it could not act on the people directly. These are things that even Jefferson pointed out he liked about it, that you could actually act on the people directly, where you couldn't do that before. So... Uh, it's interesting how you know people miss these kind of things. It's a more perfect union, a, a more perfect union of states. It's th- there wasn't a deviation here. They didn't they didn't go from one to the other. They they carried it forward. And again, these are things that the institute has been talking about for a very long period of time. We've had a number of great conferences on this issue of state sovereignty and nullification, secession, what is the Southern tradition? The thing about the South and going back to the South, we know Northerners were certainly interested in federalism early on, but we know that Northerners quickly abandoned that in favor of a quote-unquote nationalism, which really was sectionalism. There's nothing about Northern nationalism in the 19th century that is really national. It's all sectional. When you look at Daniel Webster, for example, during the War of 1812, 
All these people were worried about New England. The Hartford Convention was simply their section. They weren't concerned about the nation. They weren't concerned about that at all, really. They were concerned about the impact of the war and what it was going to do to New England. And so they had this very New England-centric vision of things. And then, of course, we have um, the, the end of that. And New Englanders, even with nullification, start to adopt this position of nationalism, the, the, the union uh, the union becomes the key to their argument because they know that if the national government has powers, this quote-unquote national government, which we don't have, but if the central authority has excessive powers, they can use those powers to their advantage. They can use the mechanisms that are in the central authority to get what they want, which is, by that point, protective tariffs, central banking, federally funded internal improvements. These are the things they're going after. It's Henry Clay's American system. And to do that, they're going to need to add states into the Union that are aligned with them and not the South. And how are they going to do that? Well, you use the issue of slavery to break this alliance between Western farmers and Southern farmers. You start speaking about you know blacks being in the West, and that's going to be dangerous to white people in the West, and so we're not going to favor that, whether it's free or slave. And you create this push to exclude, to bottle slavery up in the South, to, to limit the power of slaveholders because that would work against the political economy of the North. So limit the power of this agrarian system. The unholy alliance that was created in the 19th century, this is something that people, again, miss. The alliance that's created in the 19th century by the Republican Party of Western farmers who were not interested in the extension of slavery because of race, essentially, and New England merchants, industrialists, uh, who were interested in protective tariffs and banks, centered on one particular issue, and that was, or two, I should say, Western, cheap Western land and internal improvements. And Calhoun recognized this at one point. He said, look, if we don't start getting on board with internal improvements, we're going to lose the West. If we could just use internal improvements, we could just concede that issue. We'll keep the West in the fold, and they'll vote with us because they're farmers over these merchants in New England. And you might have seen New England secession rather than Southern secession. In fact, it was openly talked about by the abolitionists. They wanted out of the Union because they didn't want to be in this alliance with Southern slave owners. So perhaps if they had more political clout and they weren't seen as a bunch of crazy, violent oddballs, which is what everybody thought they were in the 19th century, you might have seen a different secession movement in the United States, not one in the South, but one in New England that would have actually happened. See, So there's that part of it. But what, in, in the clearest indication that this was an unholy alliance was that after the war is over, what happens? Well, the Western farmers realize they got a bad deal because big corporations start eating up this Western land and the internal improvements aren't going their way. They're not really benefiting them as much as they thought. And so these Western farmers join hands with Southern farmers and form the populist movement. That's all that is. It's what should have been there before the war, if Western farmers had actually seen what was happening behind the scenes with New Englanders who simply wanted to use the issues that I've talked about as a wedge. They weren't really committed to these things at all. Now, you did have some New Englanders certainly that were, but their commitment was tepid at best. Any of these things, as long as they could keep slaves and former slaves now, freedmen bottled up in the South, get them voting there so they can win elections, that was going to be a benefit to them. And they could get all of their legislation that they wanted. And again, we know 
What did the Republican Party do once the South's out of the Union? They passed a slew of legislation that the South would have blocked had they been part of the Congress. From the National Banking Acts to legislation for internal improvements. I mean, all kinds of things. Tariffs. They got all kinds of stuff that they wouldn't have had. Western land legislation that the South is trying to block. All of that becomes part of the legislative package that the Republican Party puts forth during the war. That's what they wanted to begin with. And to maintain that, they had to keep the South politically weak. And to do that, you had to make sure that white Southerners after the war couldn't vote. I mean, there's there's all of this stuff when you put you look at it from the big picture, the top down, and not simply just, you know, this kind of slavery, right? When you start looking at the way things work, it's clear all these things were happening. And so when you talk about state sovereignty, you talk about American sovereignty. There is no American sovereignty. There's no sovereignty of America. There is the central authority, which has powers and areas that the states collectively gave them, and that's commerce and defense. You could say that perhaps they're sovereign there because the states can't do anything about that to block those things which are listed in the Constitution because they gave, they granted the central authority those powers unless, unless the states get together and amend the Constitution and change it. Again, the states have all the power to do it. Amendments have to go through the states. They can do it through convention or they can do it through the legislatures, but it has to go through the states. The states can abolish the entire central government. The central government cannot abolish the states, at least according to the original Constitution. Now we know that the central government did abolish states, and that happened through Texas v. White, which is another interesting thing. Now, they can't really abolish a state in terms of a, of a political entity, but they can remove a state from the Union. But what they were doing there in Texas v. White and what Chase was giving cover to was military reconstruction. The central authority had essentially booted the states out of the Union and had forced them into territorial status. Now, what they should have said is that they booted you out of the Union and you're now independent, right? But they forced them into territorial status. So can the central authority reduce a state to territorial status? I don't think that question really has ever been answered. I think it's all, all was illegal. There's nothing in the Constitution that allows the general government to do that. It can't remove a state. And what you see, which is amazing to me, is people just accept this. The central authority can remove a state. It can make it to where it's not a state anymore. It can't do any of that. They can't do any of that. There's no power for the central authority to do it. And I don't care what the Supreme Court said. That's one of the real issues that's never really been adjudicated properly. The central authority can't reduce a state to territorial status at all. It also really couldn't assume state debts, but of course it did that anyways. I mean, this is the point that Calhoun was making in the 1830s. Look, the general government's done all kinds of unconstitutional stuff. So if they can do that, they can do this. There is no limit. There's no paper limit on what the general government can do because no one follows it. Even in 1837, they weren't following it. So, again, Don Livingston, years ago, was talking about these issues and no one was listening. And he did it because of the secession of these Baltic states from the Soviet Union. No one was listening to that back then. And uh, now, this has become very popular in legal circles to discuss, is secession legal or not? Where is sovereignty? What is federalism? Where do the, where do the powers of the states lie? What are these things? We're having a robust discussion again for the first time, really, since the 1860s about the powers of the states. Now, you could say we had a robust discussion about this back in the 1950s. 
In 1960s, at least Southerners were having a discussion about it. Northerners said these things don't exist. And again, that was all politically motivated. What were we doing there? Of course, that's the civil rights movement. But what was going on here, right? So we're having a robust discussion, sort of, but it was all attached to an issue that most Americans found uh, disgusting, right? They didn't really want to get on board with federalism and these kind of things when it came down to something they perceived to be a grave injustice, which was, in their mind, uh, segregation. They didn't want to get involved in that and look at that as an example of federalism. But now that we, that's off the table, right? We, we don't have that on the table anymore. Now there's other issues that are coming out. And you know who predicted all this? Well, Southerners. <laughs> they did. Uh, they predicted it back in the 19th century. They predicted it in the 20th century. They predicted all these things that essentially what the Lincolnian vision of America was going to do was going to unleash this nationalist wave and it was going to swallow up the states and it was going to reduce them to nothing. In fact, you know who else predicted that? Well, of course, the opponents of the Constitution. These things have been said for centuries. Centuries now. This is exactly what was going to happen if you let the central government have complete control of its powers. Jefferson said it uh, back in 1798. This is something that people talked about. So the rallying cry for Southerners for year was, years was the principles of 76 and 98. It's independence, free and independent states, decentralization. The Abbeville Institute has been on this for a long time. And it's nice to see that the legal profession is getting involved and in having a major discussion about this because we do need lawyers and judges who are going to issue the correct rulings on these things based on the original understanding of the Constitution of what federalism was. As we get more lawyers trained in this and understanding what these things are, is secession possible? Should it be adjudicated? What about nullification? What about federalism? What about state powers? What about all these things? As we have all of that and we get more legal scholars interested in these topics, perhaps you could see in the future a really interesting legal debate on these things taking place, a legal debate that really hasn't ever happened in American history. All right. Hope you enjoyed this week in review at the Abbeville Institute. Until next time, good day. Good day.